So last week we talked about what the Bible says about debt. We discussed how it's important to get out of debt if you're in excessive debt and follow a budget. Today we're going to talk about what the Bible says about giving, saving, and living. All three of these are discussed in the Bible, so they should be part of our lives. The challenge is in figuring out the balance between all three of them. First, some, some perspective. If you, what we talked about last week, if you owe $93,000, you are considered to be in the top 10% in the world. If you have $4,210 to your name, you are still richer than half of the world's residents. If you make $34,000 a year, you're considered to be in the top 1% in the world. The global median income is $1,225 per year, while the U.S. median income is $55,000 a year. So we are starting from a privileged position relative to the rest of the world. Sometimes, some, so now for some definitions. What is the difference between tithing and offering? Many times these words are used interchangeably but they are different and have slightly different meanings. A tithe is a specific amount of your income that you give first, and an offering is anything in excess or extra that you give beyond. A tithe comes from the Hebrew word ma'azer rishon, which means first tithe. An interesting fact about the word ma'azer, actually it means a tenth in Hebrew. A tithe is a portion of your income given as an offering to your church. Leviticus 27.30 says, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce. There seems to be two extremes when it comes to how Christians view their relationship with their possessions and in relation to giving. The first is what I kind of call the 10% rule. So you give that, and after that, you're mostly fulfilled your duty, and you can do whatever you want the rest. It's kind of like a God tax. You pay it, and then you're done. On the other side are those who feel guilt about what they're giving because they assume that as long as, they are, as there are poor and lost people in the world, God's only purpose for our money is to get to the gospel to them. It's like the stirring scene from Schindler's List where Liam Neeson, who plays Schindler, looks at his watch and remorsefully says, this watch could have freed two Jews. You end up seeing everything through the lens of what could have been done, and you feel guilty for not having done enough or given it fully. It is like if you go to Long Beach, California. I don't know if some of those of you have been there or not. You can visit the Queen Mary. The Queen Mary was originally designed as a luxury cruise liner by the British government, but when World War II broke out, it was retrofitted to carry troops back and forth in the battle. When it was a luxury liner, it accommodated 3,000 people with every possible convenience at that time. When in wartime, it was retrofitted to house 15,000 people. There's a significant difference between wartime and peacetime spending and wartime and peacetime approaches with that. 500 years ago, John Calvin acknowledged this never-ending uh, trajectory of this type of thinking. If a man begins to doubt whether he may use linen for his sheets, shirts, handkerchiefs, and napkins, he will afterwards be uncertain about cotton. Soon he must question whether he should give up napkins altogether. The Bible teaches us how to use our possessions, but it doesn't have specific defined rules per se. It's kind of like a matrix, not the Keanu Reeves type of matrix, but that a set of principles that we must follow. 
and balance between the tensions between those different principles. So what I'd like to kind of discuss today is these are these six principles, which I'm kind of calling the generosity matrix. Each six of these items has a, is a standalone item, but together it's the, the sum total of all of it that really defines the overall approach relative to giving, saving, and tithing. This is about, the first uh, point is that Jesus' generosity is the model for our own. This is probably the most important principle of all of them. This is about living a gospel-centered life. It is, it is by far the most important. 2 Corinthians 8.9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul is giving his most extensive instructions on generosity and tells the Corinthian believers that ultimately they should think about how much Jesus has given to them and respond accordingly. Jesus did not merely tithe his blood. After all, he gave it all. That means our responsibility is not just to give 10% and go on our way, but to offer 100% of our lives back to him and out of our lives for others, just as he did for us. Where would you be without Jesus? Answer at the exact same place people in this world are without you. People cannot be saved until they hear about the gospel and see it through our lives. It is only through our giving, doing, and going that it happens. In 2 Corinthians 9.10, Paul says, God will multiply your seed for sowing so that you can increase the harvest of your neighbor of, of the righteous. That means when God prospers me financially, it is it is just is not just so I can go on my way. He prospers us to increase our standard of living, but our standard of giving. So that's the most important principle, but not the only principle. If this was the only principle to recognize, then you would probably always feel guilty because whatever sacrifice for others that you do will still be less than what Jesus sacrificed for you. That being said, it's still a very important principle that we must consider in relative to the other ones. So going on to the second principle. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Start at the Garden of Eden. It was not like some sort of small garden or landscape. Genesis described the borders, and it was about the size of Yellowstone National Park, just for two naked people. Jesus pointed to the extravagant. Looking throughout the Bible, there's a number of different examples. In John 2, when Jesus supplied the wine for a wedding party, the people said it was the best wine that they ever tasted. Jesus could have provided them some sort of like two-buck chuck wine, but instead he provided the good stuff because it was made by his Father, and by enjoying it, we glorify God. In Nehemiah 8, verses 10, after God had done something amazing, the people said, hey, we should enter in a season of fasting and prayer. And Nehemiah said, no, God wants a feast. Take a look at the book of Luke. Luke 7.34 says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunk, of which he was neither, but it shows that he loved a good feast. The biblical scholar Robert Karras pointed out that just about every point in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either coming from a meal, going to a meal, or at a meal. Dr. Karras says you can literally eat your way through Luke's gospel. I'm happy to say this is an area of Christ-likeness that I've come close to mastering. We, see in, we also see in scripture that there are multiple people which have been blessed 
with great riches. Riches that they were generous with, but yet they also enjoyed. People like Abraham, Job at the beginning of his life, and Job at the end of his life. David, and not to mention Solomon. Solomon actually spent over a billion dollars of his own money in today's value to build a temple. It is clear that some of Jesus' early disciples actually came from substantial wealth. If you look at the book of Acts, some of Christ Jesus' followers evidently had very large houses as they hosted large gatherings. As we talked about last week, Philippians 4, 12-13, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned that the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this for him, through him who gives me strength. Sometimes God may Abraham you, meaning he blesses you with prosperity. When that happens, you should give him thanks, enjoy it, and look for opportunities to, to pay it forward. When he jobs you, in other words, makes you lose something or potentially everything, then you should also have the same response. You should thank him, trust him, and enjoy your relationship with him. This is what Paul is saying in Philippians 4. Through Christ can be faithful and effective in both situations. So principle two is really God gives us things to enjoy. Now, if you treat this as isolation from others, you can easily begin to justify an indulgent lifestyle. But this is a legitimate biblical principle, but it must be characterized or mimic or uh, tampered down based upon the relationship to the other factors that exist, unless you're uh, certain preachers that preach on the prosperity gospel, then you kind of ignore some of the other aspects of that. The third point, God gives us access to, God gives access to some to share with others. So continuing in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says that, that God often gives access to some of us so that we can take care of those in need. He says, at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. If you remember back to the wilderness journey from Egypt to the promised land, where the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, you will remember that God covered the ground every day with bread from heaven. It was like God spread out Krispy Kreme every morning and flipped on the hot now sign. There was so much of it, in fact, that everyone could eat their fill. But the deal was that it went bad every night. So if you tried to stockpile to make sure you had enough for tomorrow, it would basically stink your whole house up. So if you had extra, what should you do in that case? Keep it? No, you should share it. You can't keep it, and you know God will flip on the hot now sign tomorrow in the morning. Now, if you were alive during this time, it would have probably been, depending on your personality and your temperament, um, especially if you didn't know if what tomorrow would happen and you had concerns about tomorrow, you would have probably been a man of stockpiler or could have looked at it. You might have experimented in different ways to make new recipes, like making some sort of manicotti or man banana bread. I'm sorry, that was bad, but I had to do it. Um, according to Paul, that's not the primary reason that God gives us access in the present. It's to meet the needs that are actually right in front of us. Say you're a parent and you know that there's a poor kid in your kid's class who doesn't eat lunch every day. So you pack your son two sandwiches in, in his lunchbox, but you forget to tell him that the second uh, sandwich is for the, his friend. So 
at lunchtime, you remember that you didn't do it, so you head down to the school, and you get there as just as he's opening up the lunchbox and discovering the two sandwiches. And you watch your son to see what he does, and he takes it out and gives it to the poor kid. How do you feel? Well, you could feel proud because he did what he should in spite of not knowing what it is. Or you could have a weirder example where you go to the poor later and you, you say, why'd you do that? And you need to you know, get him into a Dave Ramsey class right away. No, that's not the response that you should have, but that's sometimes the way that we react to situations when God gives us with more or plenty. There are numerous places in the Bible that talk about our responsibility to the poor in front of us. Those are, for example, Proverbs 28, 27. Those who close their eyes to the poor receive many curses, but those who give to the poor will lack nothing. Continuing in Proverbs, th- Proverbs 3.27, Do not withhold from those whom it is due when it is your power to act. The book of James, in James, th- there's three different places that it says if we see a brother suffering while, it, while we have the capacity to help them and we don't, we can't be possibly people of genuine faith. So God gives you excess in the present, to meet the needs that are in front of you. Our, looking at our church presently, we have a big need in the fact that we're building a $2 million plus dollar building that's going up right now. Um, we're doing that in faith, but obviously it's only a function of the, our, the people and the congregation that are giving to it to ultimately pay that back. The, first, the fourth point is it can be wise to build wealth. Consider these instructions from Proverbs. Proverbs 14.27 says, The crown of the wise is their wealth. 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent leave surely to abundance. Proverbs 3.9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So if you're a Baptist, that probably refers to cheer wine or to sweet tea. Not to wine, but actually it does refer to wine. Uh, Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, and consider her ways. She prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. In other words, the ants even save and prepare for the future. And finally, in Proverbs thirteen twenty two, it says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Now that's quite a lot of cash as you think about it. Too. You're, you're thinking about considering not to even just your children, but your children's children to your grandchildren. So clearly God thinks it's wise to save, and even to invest. He commands it, and he rewards it. However, the Bible indicates that we should save responsibly. It's worth noting that saving money and building wealth can actually increase your ability to be generous later. Einstein was once asked what was his most powerful force in all the universe. He thought for a minute, and his response was compound interest. As we talked last week, compound interest can hurt you if it's debt, and at the same time, it can reward you if it's interest. One of the sayings that um, Dave Ramsey always has that I thought was appropriate is, is to live like no one else so that you can live like no one else. So in other words, the decisions that we make, especially when we're young, if we can take advantage of compound interest, can change our position in the future and allow us to be more generous. Again, We need to balance this principle with the others that we talked about, but clearly saving money and investing are a part of God's wise life. Now, going to the fifth principle. Treasures in heaven are better than treasures on earth. 
Matthew 6.19 says, Do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. So in other words, this talks about the fact that your material possessions or the things that we may focus in on, they can be stolen, they can be destroyed, they decay over time. And so it's just keeping a proper perspective over all those things. If that's your sole goal and then all of a sudden something happens to them, then that's going to be disappointing and defeating it to you as a person. But if you're focusing on your main thing, which is what you're doing for Christ and how you're setting yourselves up for the future, then some of those things become less important and less focused. Imagine if you were a wealthy landowner in Virginia. So during the war times, during the Civil War, so you had a whole bunch of money. But what happens soon as the Civil War ends, that Confederate currency that you have is basically worthless. And so what if you were wise, what you should be doing, knowing seeing that's coming, is to, you should be trading it in for as much as possible for something that you can keep that has values. All of our stockpiled earthly treasures here about our, will eventually be worthless to us. They are kind of like Confederate money. You cannot take any of it with you, but you can send it ahead. When you realize this, this should change your perspective and cause you to make different decisions. Principle six, look to God, not to money, as your primary source of security and significance. A lot of people give money first place in their hearts because they look at it for two things, security and significance. They should be looking through for both through God. So for some someone that focuses on uh, happiness, significance, status, they tend to be spenders and they tend to be more focused here and now. For others, money is a way to feel secure in the future. Those people tend to be savers. Regardless of if you're a spender or a saver, your Matthew 6 tells both groups to find things first in God. doesn't need, mean that we shouldn't ever spend or save, but, sh- but we look, should look for security and significance in God. It's when you put the significance of money ahead of God that that's really where the problem becomes. We should set limits both in spending and saving so we can invest in the kingdom of God. We should also have a budget so we can know what we're spending on and prioritize that appropriately. So in conclusion, we talked about six unique principles as it pertains to money and how we should deal with it. And I'll just go over them and repeat them once again. Jesus' generosity is the model for our own. God gives us richly when all things to enjoy. God gives excess to some to share with others. It can be wise to build wealth. Treasures in heaven are better than treasures on earth. And look to God, not to money, as your primary source of security and significance. So the question becomes, how much should we give? It would be nice in this case if there was a law or a specific rule that it can make it easy for us so we can basically have a box to check or to look at the way that we're spending and align it with that standard and then we can judge goodness or badness based upon that. The, the New Testament unfortunately doesn't provide a specific standard. The Old Testament does provide a minimum was, which is at least 10%. That's probably a great place to start, but the New Testament however gives principles instead, and focuses in on our hearts. There are three primary questions to kind of ask in relation to that. Is God getting my first and best? So 
if we were to look at your bank statements and your credit card statements, what does your giving say about what is first in your heart? Whenever you look at those standards, it's, it's basically out there for you to see. Maybe you should look through it and develop a standard or, or basically go through it and categorize it and see how that aligns with what the goals that we're talked about today should be. Second principle, or second question to ask. What does my money reveal about what I love the most, what I trust the most, and what kingdom I am living for? The same thing, your priorities drive your spending a lot of times. So if your priorities, if you want to change your priorities, maybe you need to change some of your spending and the way you're doing it. Third question, are you seeking God's direction on how to use your resources best and then follow through on those directions? I think if you take the six principles we kind of discussed today into account, I believe you'll find yourself living sufficiently and giving extravagantly. So let me close today by looking at a message to three different groups, and probably every one of us falls into three different groups, and maybe we've gone into those different groups over time. The first of you is, first group is, some of you have gotten into the habit of throwing a tip to God when you feel so moved. As we talked about today, you should give in a regular, intentional, and planned way that declares God is first. Now, some of the people that could just do this from the standpoint of when they're given uh, something special, they give a lot. And in this case, the amount of money is not necessarily the, the point because someone could be actually extremely generous in giving their tips. But the problem is, is they aren't really, they're only giving it conditionally, only when good things happen. And that's not really the way that the Bible talks about you. The second group of people is, so, are those that have never given. And I, I just want to challenge you to take the next step in giving. Jesus calls us to a life of generosity and joy, not stinginess and fear. And there's obviously a, a challenge associated with that when you take that step of faith. But I, I will promise you, if you do take that step of faith and you give, you will see God's direction, you'll see God's provision in your life, and you will ultimately have more dependence on him, which is ultimately one of the key principles of what we're trying to do. And then the third category of people, for those of you that are faithful tithers, again, this is a great place to start. Just make sure that it isn't exactly just a formula. Make sure you're reflecting God's being in your first and the best, and you're always being spirit-led, not law-led. Consider what sort of excess manna that you can use in a way that reveals that Christ is first and that he is your trust and treasure. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for for you and just your provision for us and how much uh, we have to be thankful that we're able to live in this country with excess and, and, and prosperity. In fact, uh, a lot of people are just even searching for food and shelter, and we have a lot of those things to take for granted. Lord, I just want to pray that this message and these series of messages can be used appropriately, that we can just look at our spending and make sure that we're pro properly aligning that with what you teach that we can be both a blessing and a meaning to what you have chosen us to. I just pray that also that the church, that we would use any money that's provided wisely, that, that we would use this upcoming facility that will be available in the next two months or so that appropriately, and we'd have a great impact on our community, that we could use the giving properly in order to bless those in the community as a result of that. And I just pray that we will look at the the stewards and the resources that we've been given 
as not ours, our owns, but as yours and use them appropriately. We just thank you so much for your provision in our lives. In your name, amen.